Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Wildlife, episode 27. I, as always, am your host, Jason Goldman, and my guest this week is science writer Melissa Cronin. If you are anything like me, then you spend lots of time reading about animals on the internet, and you've no doubt come across Melissa's work if you have. She spent the last couple years as a writer and editor at The Dodo, and before that, she spent some time on the science desk at The Huffington Post. Now that she's left the dodo to strike it out on her own as a freelancer, her first big project is a web series she's producing called Down to Earth, which is about our planet and its environment. She told me a little bit about what she's got planned for Down to Earth, and I'm really excited to see it when it comes out later this year, so I'm sure you will be too. In this episode, we talked a lot about what it's like to be a science writer focusing on wildlife and conservation on the internet. You'll hear a little bit about gibbon singing. You'll hear quite a lot about why penguin poop is so important, and what episode of The Wildlife could be complete without some dolphins. So with that out of the way, here comes The Wildlife, episode 27, with Queen of the Dolphins, Melissa Cronin. So the tradition is that the guest goes first in cool. sharing uh, sharing the new thing that they've learned. I have to go with the thing that I did a couple hours ago. Okay. Um, we were at this Gibbon Conservation Center in Santa Clarita, I think it is. And uh, I've never studied, learned about gibbons, wrote about gibbons. I, I don't even know. I mean, I knew there were apes. That was pretty much it. Right, so, lesser apes. Yeah. yeah. And uh, so we went. It was great. We're shooting the gibbons. Really interesting. Talking to the director. It was a lot of fun. And they're so charismatic and cool. And they're getting a little tired by the end of our visit. So we're like, okay, you know, we'll wrap up. We'll do How that. long were you there? Like, uh, probably like two hours. That's, That's not so bad. long. Yeah. 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 They were, they'd had enough of us. So <laughs> we're like, okay. Uh, and the director says, oh, well, you know, why don't we have them sing before you leave? Oh, yeah. Their calls are like... Oh, my God. I've heard them at... Um, I think we have them in L.A., but I've definitely heard them at the San Diego Zoo. Oh, my God. It was like nothing. Uh, so she's, she has a stand right next to them, puts us near this dominant gibbon, and she says, okay, now you have to make the gibbon call, and they're going to start calling with you. How do you make and, the gibbon call? Oh, <laughs> I was hoping I wouldn't have to do it, but... <laughs> It's almost sounds like a burp and then a hoot okay. to make them like start like oh, getting into it. You mean it, what right? you have to do in order to get yeah, them to call? You have to do that their gibbon call. I and, see. And I didn't realize that we were participating. That we were <laughs> gibbons for a minute, so it's sort of like uh oop, and you have to do that <laughs> over and over and over That's and awesome. over. Yeah, and so then they start doing that with you and like sort of slowly and she's hyping them up and hyping them up and we're like, okay, what's going to go on? And finally they just start screeching. Oh my gosh, it was wild. And we have probably a half hour of footage That's awesome. of that. It really lasted. Will they do that? Is it only, will they only do it in response to females or will they do it in response to males too? No, I too? think it's any, anyone. Yeah, because the ones who started were females. Oh, okay. Yeah, and, and so then there's like seven different species there and they're in enclosures pretty close to one another. So one starts and then the other 
family or species has such a different call. So it's like just this cacophony. It's but then they all start long. calling. Yeah. So the whole entire park, forty-two gibbons. Wow. It was a lot of noise. That's awesome. Are <laughs> they? I've always wondered. I've. I mean, I've known that this like gibbon conservation center exists near LA. I've just never been there. It's Are odd. they like rescues? Like people who had. Pets that aren't supposed to be pets? Yeah, that's what I thought too, but I think only two or three are rescues. Most of them are breeding from earlier generations and then they either keep them there for education awareness or put them into zoos. And it's right. like so they're, they're, survival they're, programs. They're one of the like AZA accredited non-zoo oh, zoos. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah Actually, exactly. I learned I learned recently, um, I went to the wildlife way station mm-hmm. Um uh, in the San Gabriel Mountains, um, which is like a, it was actually the first wildlife sanctuary in the U.S. Oh, really? Wow. Um, and she was saying, I can't remember if I've talked about this in the podcast or not. I'm sure I have. Um, but she was saying that in order to qualify as a zoo, and she doesn't want to, like, they don't want the way station to be a zoo because they don't want, you know, people walking around with their popcorn and stuff. Yeah. But, it, like, legally, in order to qualify as a zoo, you have to be open to the public 36 hours a week. Oh yeah, then maybe they're not because yeah, because like weekend. the sanctuary, the Gibbon sanctuary, they like they have tours like on weekends or something. Yeah, for right? like four hours yeah. or something. Yeah, um, but I think with AZA, like they have like there are the AZA accredited zoos and aquariums, mm-hmm. um, but then there's like a whole list of like affiliated institutions mm-hmm. that like yeah. meet a certain set of standards in terms of animal care, but yeah. not necessarily in terms of like visitor services or whatever. Um, that like are okay to transfer animals to and from mm-hmm. right because like a zoo like an accredited zoo won't transfer an animal to an unaccredited zoo like a, a roadside attraction kind of place sure um but because because so i learned a lot about this a couple years ago when um the the giraffe was euthanized at the uh, Copenhagen yeah, Zoo um, and learning about all the different regulations between AZA and EAZA and WAZA mm-hmm. and all the different institutions. And at the time, people were like, well, if you don't have room for this giraffe, why can't you send him somewhere else? People are volunteering to take them. Mm-hmm. And the the basic answer is, and it's true for all of these like consortiums of zoos, is if you're a zoo, you've taken responsibility for the welfare of the animal throughout its life and you're not going to transfer an animal to somewhere where you're... Yeah. We don't random. know what's going to happen. Um, and that's the case here in the U.S. or in North America for AZA as well. So there are all these like approved institutions that are not exactly zoos. So I guess the Goodman Center must be one yeah, of them. Yeah, because I know they place within AZA zoos. Yeah. Um, but I don't know exactly their accreditation. But another super interesting thing I was learning about when we were covering WAZA a lot there's this whole group of unaccredited organizations that accredit like roadside zoos and oh. stuff like that. And oh my gosh, it's this crazy. Because most most visitors, like even a lot of visitors, even if they mean well, they yeah. don't necessarily know how to distinguish. They just want something, and it's such a wild, like massive. I think there's dozens of them. Yeah, I'm sure. Where oh you can just gosh. buy your yeah, buy your yeah. certification. I mean, it's like you've got a tiger in a cage. <laughs> Here you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but it's so cool that like they're there and they're doing. You yeah, know, they're good cool. educational stuff, and, mm-hmm. and they're um, in the middle of nowhere. It's like yeah. it's like an hour away in the mountains, and you just roll up to this like farm. There's horses all around, beautiful scenery, and then like you hear forty gibbons <laughs> screeching. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so I'll, we'll get in a little bit. I guess we'll get to some of the reasons why you were there filming <laughs> them. Um, but so the thing that uh, I learned this week. I mean, and I always have to like, like I never just learned one thing this week. Like, right? That's why our like our jobs are so cool. Um, but I've been writing a lot about poop lately. Oh, I saw the penguin poop. The penguin poop. Oh, yeah. God, I was just um, reading that. Yeah. So. Uh, like two weeks ago, I wrote about hippo poop and why hippo poop is important in African <laughs> ecosystems. Um, I did not intend to like for this to be my beat, but apparently in the last couple of weeks, this has become poop my beat. beat. Um, but you know, people like it, and people will click on those headlines, and it's uh, interesting stuff. Um, so, so there's this. Uh, so, like the thing about penguins is they live in Antarctica, right? And Antarctica is not the easiest place to work and do like animal behavior observations. Um, because it's cold and ha- dark for half the year, um, and a lot of places are inaccessible. And if you're going to bring humans, then you need to bring like infrastructure, um, right? And there's so there are some like penguin colonies where they spend the breeding season that are like relatively more accessible, um, but then there are a lot of colonies that are not. And there are, depending on how you count, between like 19 and 22 different species of penguins. Um, all of which have their own sort of behaviors and also are subject to their own like threats. Um, and even within a species, different colonies based on where they're located will have, will, will face different kinds of threats. Um, so if you're trying to understand uh, a little bit about penguin conservation and what they need and what, uh, you know, sort of how, how they live their lives, you need to do, Basically, we need to have more information about these colonies that are in places that we can't access as well, or at least throughout the year. Because um, most of what we know comes from a small handful of colonies. So what these researchers have done is basically, now that we have like really good quality camera traps, um, they've spread, they've, they've deployed camera traps to all these colonies that were, you know, maybe they can get there um, for long enough to put up a camera trap. Um, and then it can be powered throughout the breeding season and they can come back at the end of the breeding season to collect the data. Um, they don't have to like have someone out there every day watching the penguins. Um, so they put all these camera traps and they have tons and tons and tons of photos now. Um, and like now they have a data problem, right? Like there's too many photos for Mm. a team of researchers, you know, five or six or 10 or even 20 researchers to systematically analyze. So they started a citizen science program called Penguin Watch um, where people can like go online and look at penguin photos and answer some questions about what's in the photos and then the researchers can analyze the data. And it actually turns out that it's probably a bit of a self-selected group, but Mm -hmm. like the, like the data tends to hold up the people who are probably logging in to participate in Penguin Watch are probably not like fooling around with it. Um, and I'm sure they have something like where every photo gets shown to three people yeah. or something um, to see that there's some agreement among observers. But anyway, what they found out, so, so they're, they're just, they processed, they analyzed something like 175,000 photos wow. um, over the last Same. like year. Oh. I think it launched in 2014. So it's only been a little over a year. Um, and one of the things that they found, um, which they could only, like this is the kind of data that you need daily observations for is that um gentoo penguins uh actually start congregating a little bit before the breeding season starts and they huddle on the ice and 
when you get a whole bunch of birds hanging out on the ice, what you get is a whole bunch of bird crap. Because <laughs> um, that's what they do. They eat fish and then they crap out the leftovers, right? Um, and because their poo is dark, um, compared to like the reflective white ice, um, it absorbs more light and therefore absorbs more heat. And it makes the ice underneath it melt faster than the surrounding ice. Oh, wow. So these, it's obviously not intentional, but what these penguins are doing is like preparing the ground to receive their eggs. Because, you know, I guess if they laid their eggs on the pure ice, they would probably, I don't know, freeze. I don't, I don't know. It probably wouldn't be good for whatever reason. Like I, I have to assume penguin eggs have some anti-freezing capabilities. Yeah. Because but... it's cold there anyway. But anyway, they, they like though that you, you watch this like time lapse video of this one colony that they that they shared. Um, and you see that like the parts of the ice where the penguins are hanging out are melting faster than the parts of the ice that they're not hanging out on. Um, so that's pretty cool. That's that cool. like they have this like magical ice melting poop. penguin poop. <laughs> um, if only they knew. Yeah, and like that's you know, and obviously it's not intentional on the part of the penguins. Mm-hmm. But um, it, I, it's another one of those things that sort of goes to the power of citizen science and social media. It's yeah, cool. Um, and now, you know, for the people listening, if you want to go analyze photos of penguin poop there um, or other kinds of penguins, um, like they're about to release another half a million photos for analysis. And they're running a contest because like one of their sponsors is one of the cruise lines that goes to Antarctica. I don't remember which one. Quark Expeditions, I think. And you can go on, um, and for every 10 images that you analyze, you get entered into a drawing for a free cruise in Antarctica up to once per day. It's pretty sweet. Which I'm kind of dying to go to Antarctica. <laughs> yeah. I don't know that I have the time to analyze all that data. I think I have probably a high likelihood of getting assigned a story that involves going to Antarctica. <laughs> you can or at least hire I hope someone so. to continuously. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, but then they would want the yeah, free trip to Antarctica. Well, I have to tell you that I used to work at a penguin colony that's at so, the that's New so England cool. Aquarium. Yeah, when I was in college, I just got like a summer internship or something. Was it and mostly cleaning up penguin poop? It was all cleaning up <laughs> penguin poop. That's how it starts. And it, I, they t- I'm not sure. I haven't verified this, but they told me that penguins poop the most out of any bird. So that was awful. Interesting. And they. Like the most, like the biggest volume, the most often. I don't know what the measurement was. It could have been volume. Maybe it was uh, distance because there there was some. Oh, there's that. There's that like famous graphic of the penguin, like, and it's like projectile. Oh, oh, there projectile. Yeah. And the way it was set up was these tall rocks, and you had to push the penguins off the rocks every day to clean the entire surface. And once you push them off the rock, and they and you clean, and then you got back on. They would get mad. I mean, they're mad. You're <laughs> pushing them rock, off their yeah. yeah dry little surface, and they would aim at you oh, at wow. these like poor That's young awesome. college kids, <laughs> and just poop directly onto your wetsuit. It was the amount of times I picked penguin poop out of my ponytail. <laughs> That's my new rock band song. Um, it was gross. It was just disgusting. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like there's there's like you you haven't done enough work with animals if you haven't been pooped on. Oh yeah, for at sure. At least once. It's like a rite of passage. Or been like attacked by an angry bird or something. <laughs> Anything negative. It's yeah, I got I got pooped on by a lot of chickens in grad school. Oh, God. Um and chickens are not as cool as penguins, to be honest. Um and they are messy and yeah. they are loud 
and they are smelly. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't think a lot of bird lovers know what birds are. <laughs> They're just like loud. Yeah, like the birders who go out with their binoculars. Machine. Yeah, yeah. Like I mean, that's a great to way to see birds. Yeah. yeah. They don't know the truth. Yeah, birders, birders. I think birding can be fun, but sometimes birders are like an intense group of people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I went out once a couple years ago. I wrote a blog post about this. There was like a like three blue-footed boobies had come through LA. Um, which like happens sometimes because like LA is along an important bird migration route. It's mm-hmm. called the uh, Pacific Flyway. Um, so it's rare, but it happens. Um, but it's like rare enough that it makes the news. Um, and like I had never seen a blue-footed booby like in a wild or in like a zoo or something. Um, so I was like, and these are like important birds. Like these are these are Darwin's, you know, famous blue-footed boobies with the with the mating dance and everything. I had to go try to see them, and I don't know the first thing about birding. Oh, like how a, like you hear that three birds have are spotted in L.A. Like how do you find them? <laughs> L.A. is big and birds are small. Um, so like I tweeted about it, and one of my friends who um, knows some things about birding um, was like, "You should look at the rare bird alert." And I was like, that's a thing? <laughs> so, like, like online, when there are rare birds that come through, the birding community, like, tells, like, they say where and when they've seen a bird. Um, and uh, and uh, Audubon, like, the California chapter of the Audubon also responded to me on Twitter. And they were like, here's, nice. like, here's, like, the rare bird alert. And I went over, and um, this was, like, a Saturday morning or something. And one of them or two of them had been spotted on the breakwater, like, uh, outside of Playa del Rey and the people who posted were like this was like at 9am or something and I was looking it was like already 10 or something and they're like you have to go out to like the third jetty and then walk out to the end and then look at the breakwater and it's on the left side whatever um, so I was like okay um, and I found my way and I parked my car found the, like the third jetty climbed out and like it was paved a little bit and then it just like it's just big boulders because normal people don't go scrambling over the jetty like that and i was like like carefully kind of climbing my out i had like my camera with me with my like zoom lens um these two little old ladies were like walking back climbing over the rocks with their like little binoculars around their necks um and they were like are you out here to see the boobies and i was like yes (laughs) um and i get all the way out to the end and i look out at the breakwater and there are hundreds of birds on the breakwater hundreds and most of them are like gulls and uh, uh pelicans and you know like just normal normal shorebirds that we have here <laughs> i was like and it was probably a good i don't know 500 meters away like it wasn't like like th- th- there were th- there were just birds <laughs> i was like how like how do they know like i guess they're looking for the blue feet right um, so I'm trying to like look through my like zoom lens and like I could get a little bit closer, but not enough to like see the color of their feet. It was all just kind of whitish grayish blobs, all the birds. Like I could tell the pelicans cause they were big. Um, so, and there was at the end, there was this couple, um, like birders who had driven 50 miles from like inland, like Glendora or diamond bar or something like 50 miles to see these birds, just to see the birds. They're dedicated. Uh, yeah, and like I was talking to them for a little bit, and they were like, you know, when their kids were young, they used to go like go on hiking, and they eventually started buying field guides to know what they were looking at. And they were never like serious about it, but their kids were like out of the house, 
And this is what they decided to like do is like check birds off of a off of a bird list. Um, so it was. I mean, it was cool. They were cool people. Um, and they had like one of those like birding telescopes. Oh wow! Those set up are there really on a tripod. Expensive. Yeah, and like they had it centered on the on the booby. One of them. So so you did. So I looked see through it. it, and I was like, it still looks like a gray blob oh to me. Oh my god! But like, okay, I can tell it's different from the gulls. Um, and I was like, <sighs> I was like, its feet don't really look blue. And they were like, it's a juvenile. Its feet haven't turned blue yet. And I was like, what? <laughs> I've been misled. That's the saddest ending. To yeah, birding. Story. Yeah, and so like I snapped a photo, and like I was like, I don't remember which bird that is in the photo, and it, but it's like a sh- like I I put it up on my blog at the time on Scientific American, and I like I had to like include a graphic like an arrow, indicating which bird it was because like you can't tell. Oh. Um, but you can check your list. So yeah. Well, yeah. So I can check juvenile gray-footed, blue-footed <laughs> boobies off you of my list. You haven't seen the adult. Yeah, that's a whole yeah. other trip. So that's my. That's my birding story. It's hard. Um, yeah. It's hard. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it's probably a good excuse for just people to get outside. Yeah. I've um, heard that. And like give them something to do while they're hiking. Yeah. It's a nice activity. I've heard that birders spend more per year than hunters in the really? US. Yeah. It was some study that drew all that data up and huh. they buy. Like on binoculars and stuff? Yeah. Field and guides? On, on just going to the reserve oh, or whatever, the pond. They spend a lot. And yeah. I mean, if you think about it, the demographic of birders is probably... A little bit older. Older, a upper more middle affluent, class. Yeah. yeah. I mean... They like yeah, I mean, birds. there are people... There are, like... There are... I mean, I, I say this with a little bit of sarcasm, but also, like, a lot of respect, because this is, like... It requires a kind of patience that I don't think I have at this point in my life. But there are birding cruises you can go on. Because, nice. like, there are, cer- like, oh, there are certain, like, marine birds that you can only see from a, from a boat. And if you want to check wow. those birds off your list, you ha- like have to be on a cruise ship. That's a great story. Um, Take a cruise ship with a bunch of birders. Yeah, um, yeah, maybe, maybe one day. <laughs> um, but uh, I was. It's interesting that you say that about um, spending more money because I just wrote up a study, a paper um, from Karen Cooper, who used to be at the uh, Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Mm-hmm. Now she's like the head, of, the head of citizen science at North Carolina Museum of something, something. Natural, it's, uh, like basically their natural history museum. Um, natural sciences. And I think what the results of their study were was that like in the U.S., a lot of our f- federal funding for conservation-related programs like through National Park Service, National Forest Service, Fish and Wildlife comes from the hunting mm. industry, from licenses and there are certain kinds of taxes on ammunition and things like that. Um, and that the, the, like, like the other big group of people who is likely to spend money on conservation-related things, like, which, is, which are the birders, like the mm. wildlife watchers, um, like we don't get federal revenue from them. Oh, because so so they might spend that money. Yeah, but that money ends up going to like REI. Yeah, <laughs> um, along with all of my money, um, and not it's like it doesn't actually wind its way back mm-hmm. into conservation. It's like going programs. into the market, right? So That's so maybe so if 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 they are spending all this money, wouldn't it be great if like just like there's a conservation tax on ammunition, um. 
Birding maybe guides. there could be a tax on birding guides or on those super high powered binoculars or yeah. those birding telescopes. Because I mean, you don't need like if you're going to hunt, you need equipment. Yeah, like, but to bird, all you need is like binoculars and a field kit. Yeah, but when you hunt too, you get a product. Yeah, out of, that's true. I mean, I, I bet a lot of birders would say the experience is right. The, product, the experience is the product. But you take something home with you. That's true. That's true. Which might factor into that cost. It could, but I mean, I mean, I guess, I, I mean, I would assume that a lot of birders take photos. Yeah, yeah, you're so right, and that. sell them too. It's, I mean, yeah, the ones who like are legit photographers. Yeah. there was that really interesting. I think it was an Audubon uh, story just like last week, a feature on, oh, I can't remember where they were, but there was these birders and a guy who was showing uh, bird watchers, photographers, like professional photographers, to some endangered nest, and he kept getting spotted, like harassing uh-huh. them. And finally, he went to jail, or, or wow. he got fined like a ton of money because he was like supposed to be this nature guide and he was violating the Endangered Species Act. Right. And they're like, you, your whole purpose yeah. is to help protect these. And he was like really going for them. Yeah, that's 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 not good. Yeah. Um, yeah. The it's been it's been kind of a depressing few weeks for wildlife <laughs> in Los Angeles. I, I, that doesn't sound like it's L.A. But oh no, um, somewhere else. Yeah, but we had just a couple of days ago, someone broke into the Pacific Marine Mammal Rescue Center. Oh, the chlorine and poured chlorine into yeah. the oh, like sea lion tanks. Awful. It's been I every every and and just like a week earlier, people kidnapped a, um, a juvenile sea lion like from the beach. Oh Jesus! Um, yeah, this is like I, I I get more and more upset every time something like this yeah. happens. Well, you um, know, we were at uh, this rain mammal sea lion rescue rehab center in near san francisco okay in marin oh yeah yeah yes yeah, this big huge one and they said that a lot of people will see baby sea lions on the beach just like sort of flailing about because their mothers are out oh yeah and they'll fishing. think that they're yeah and they just come and pick them up yeah and it's like now that baby is an orphan yeah. because you picked it up <laughs> yeah i mean there's I have I, I have a little bit more tolerance for well-meaning people who oh, just yeah. don't know the first thing about animal behavior. Yeah. And that just because you see a juvenile by itself doesn't mean it's orphaned. Yeah. Um, I have trying. no patience for, like, for the other people. Oh, God, that's terrible. Um, let's, let's turn back to something happy. <laughs> um, so you said that you, um, in college, were doing, like, penguin stuff, like, vo- like volunteering. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, it's, like, interning. At the aquarium, for, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, were you always into animals? Oh, like, yeah. Were you that kid chasing after lizards in your backyard? Yeah, that freaky little child grabbing <laughs> worms from the ground, getting yelled at. Yeah, I mean, totally. I loved animals growing up. I was, you know, there's like the horse girl loves horses. <laughs> I was like the dolphin I knew girl. Some, I knew some of those. Yeah, there's Also a lot. those, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, I kind of fell off my radar when I started college, but I was doing biology and, and, and journalism. And then I was like, well, you know, actually, my passion is really not either straight media reporting, and it's not lab research. Um, so I started to get into the environmental biology program, and then I just double Where? majored. Oh, at uh, NYU. Okay. And it was really perfect. Um, and then, yeah, I started working with wildlife as much as I could, um, and some, like, animal shelters and stuff like that but that wasn't really either my interest 
but it, it worked out great. I mean, I could, I found a way to combine my two things and then I just started in this field, which is a really odd place to be. And it's, it's also rare to meet people who like know what it's like to think <laughs> about animals all day long yep. and also write about them at it from like a reporting standpoint. Yeah. Um, but it's a great place. So you, um, you spent some time at the Huffington Post mm-hmm. yep. on the science desk. Yes. Um, and, and from there you went to the Dodo? Yeah. Yeah. Were literally. you involved with the Dodo from the, t- like from before mm-hmm. it launched? Yep. Like, right I feel like there. I remember sending you emails on that time. Yeah. Yeah. Right from the start. I think I was one of the first employees and you were an editor, a managing editor or something editor. No, I, I started as like an assistant editor, okay. but then I was a staff writer That's pretty right. much by the time we were publishing, uh, which was a lot of fun because I could, you know, do my own stories, right. think about really things that were like important to me or I was interested in. Um, so it was great. Yeah. I mean, it was kind of a, a new space for me, but it was a good dream job. Like the online space. Well, Huffington Post was, yeah, but, and, and I feel like the, like the two outlets have some similarities in oh, terms yeah, of for you sure. know, the strategy mm-hmm. um, yeah. and building their audience and things like that. Yeah, for sure. It was really impressive how fast the Dodo. <laughs> everyone likes animals. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And everyone likes cute things. And everyone likes things pooping and things eating other things (laughs) yeah Um, i mean the internet really is like i I can think of nothing better for the internet than animals it's like so visual everyone likes to look at them everyone likes to watch four minute clips of them it's great yeah i always say it like in terms of getting people looking at science things that like that they weren't originally looking for Mm -hmm. like there are those people who will type scientificamerican.com into their Mm -hmm. browsers um, and that's an important audience. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the good people. Those are the good people. And <laughs> but those are different from the ones like if if the if a, if an important part of what you want to be doing is like outreach mm-hmm. and reaching those people who aren't already looking for good scientific content or conservation related content or whatever, um, then then you've got to get beyond those people who are typing scientificamerican.com into their browsers. Oh yeah, and. I, I've always said that, like, the, the ways in, I think, for most people are space mm-hmm. and animals. Oh, yeah, for sure. Um, pretty pictures of stars and planets and things, like Hubble Telescope, um, and then animals doing cute things yeah. or gross things. <laughs> gross things. Yeah, I mean, everyone has an entry point, and every person, even us animal freaks, wildlife freaks, we started somewhere getting into this stuff. So I think, you know, no uh, content is worthless when you're trying to get people involved. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, and I think that everything can be value added, even yeah. like cute puppy videos or whatever. <laughs> What's this puppy really thinking? <laughs> um, I, I mean, I think there's at least, I think there's a way to make all that kind of content sure. value added. So it's not just clickbait i mean clickbait is fine yeah but i would like to get someone to click on that leak and then i'll learn something even if it's just one yeah um that maybe they didn't know before yeah and yeah and i also i mean i think having the opportunity to do more interesting more substantial stuff was the best part of that whole experience um I mean, that's what every journalist wants <laughs> anyways. Right, right. But, to make money, but to also do something that is important to you. Yeah, yeah. Make a lot of money. No <laughs> kidding. 
Um, but it must have been interesting to be at the dodo in it, like in the you was it like two years you were there ish. Uh, a little less than. So, but like while you were there was like when Blackfish became mm-hmm. a thing. Yeah. Um, I think also probably when the Copenhagen Zoo, like the mm-hmm. giraffe issue. Yeah, that's um, crazy. Like there were a lot of. I don't know if it's the case that issues of animal welfare and conservation have been like people are more have been more aware of them in the last few years or if i've just paid more attention because this is now what i do for a living um or maybe both i think uh, yeah i think it's a, probably a little both myself included i think you pay more attention to things when you're living in them all the time but i think you know blackfish was huge and like I, I'm not sure if a day has gone by that the dodo has not had something about yeah, SeaWorld. Big story. In, in two years. I mean, SeaWorld is the best story because there are so many things that a reporter like wants. There's a corporation doing something bad. There are whistleblowers. There are really charismatic animals for your visual. There's this huge amounts of money involved. I mean, it was kind of a dream covering yeah. it because you can really just be like, let's let's find one more thing wrong, you know, and deservedly, I think. Um, but I also think people like responded to that more so than maybe other equivalent animal issues in the past because that documentary was so well made. Yeah, you know, really highly visual, really quality, and I do think that. The way we're looking to like interact with animals is shifting, maybe yeah. slowly, but I think that was a big turning point, uh, at least here, at least in the U.S. Yeah, um, yeah, I think I agree with most of that. Um, I think I think part of the part of part of the blackfish phenomenon um, is possibly that for many of us, we grew up going to SeaWorld and mm-hmm. seeing the Shamu show. And for many people, um, for better or worse, that was among the formative experiences that led us yeah. to uh, think about animals and sure. conservation of wildlife. Um, you know, I know for me, it was, um, you know, those kinds of visits were instrumental in uh, making me want to be a biologist. Yeah. Um, I agree totally. I mean, and so there was almost a feeling of, I think for many people, of feeling like the rug had been pulled out from under them hmm. because there's this thing that we grew up loving. And now we're starting to understand that things are more complicated in the real world. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, good or bad, whether or not ultimately at the end of the day, um, you think that killer whales ought to be in captivity or not. Um, I think you, there, there was a little bit of, there was, there was a lot of sort of, feeling that people had been a little bit fooled or were fooling themselves mm-hmm. um, in a way that, you know, like for me, in some ways, like the poaching crisis is a bigger issue, oh, in, like in terms of yeah. conservation. Like sometimes there are issues of animal welfare and sometimes there are issues of conservation. Um, and sometimes they're the same and sometimes they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, right? Like, People, you know, in the last few years, there have been a lot of high profile stories about trophy hunters. Mm-hmm. Um, and for me, like, I wish people got as riled up about poaching as oh, about the yeah. handful of animals that are taken up by trophy hunters. Because one is an issue of animal welfare, and I don't understand the desire to shoot an animal yeah. for a trophy. But 
all things like all things being equal, poaching is a much bigger problem for mm-hmm. me. And like, if we're going to solve, like, assuming we have limited resources, which we do, I'd rather spend my headlines on poaching, mm-hmm. not on crazy people going out and shooting animals. Yeah, and it's so way. frustrating too because you see, like, if we any site does a story about like the last year's poaching numbers or even like an emotional story about poaching. And then like Ricky Gervais shares like a trophy hunter one person. Of course that's like a huge problem, but it's like so irritating to see the response to that and the money that goes into that or like the, just the media it's, I mean, it's a huge problem and I don't know how to solve it. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I ideally, all the problems could be solved. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, kind of, you know, it, it, a little bit, it's like a couple of years ago, Michelle uh, Nighthouse, I have no idea if that's how you say her last name. I don't think we've ever met in person. But she wrote a great article for Scientific American about, like, conservation triage. Mm. That, like, yes, it would be wonderful if we could save everything, but we can't. Right. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do we figure out how to prioritize? Because like we have to make we have to prioritize because if we go at it in a haphazard way and throw a little bit of money and everything and a little bit of time and effort and everything, then nothing is going to be saved. Right. Um, And I mean, I don't know what the answer is, but I think it's better to have a plan and to pre-establish a set of criteria like a a triage system Uh um, than to think throw up our hands and be like, well, we can't make this decision. Like, who are we? Um, Right. So, so yeah. So I think, I don't, I'm not sure how we got here, but I wish that there was (laughs) as much of an outcry over um, the poaching issues as there is over like SeaWorld. Sure. Oh yeah, totally. Um, I I think, and I think there's a lot less, there's a lot less nuance to be had in terms of the poaching issues than there is in terms of SeaWorld. (laughs) Um, yeah, I can't disagree. I mean, it's hard to justify the lives of, you know, probably, what is it, like 40 whales. Yeah, something like that. I, mean, I also think, you know, SeaWorld is a symbol yeah, for yeah. This, huge These bigger issues. But I think, like, that is such a parallel to the way that conservation works as as a whole field. You know, people want to save elephants rhinos these really beautiful charismatic animals and then you see like all of the amphibians slowly right. going extinct and you're like right there's oh, the charismatic like, why? issue yeah and I, of course you understand i mean we love we love gibbons we love right. elephants but it, it's a frustrating field to be in i think and i'm not even a scientist but i can imagine yeah so did you see um uh this week uh the zoological society of london for their london zoo um, open a new exhibit. I don't remember the exact species, but it's a type of turtle. Um, and it's um, threatened or endangered. And its primary uh, threat is poaching and people uh, collecting the animals from the wild mm. for food. The eggs or the... The turtles themselves. Wow. Um, and so normally in a zoo, like best practices are that you create an enclosure to be as close to the what it would have in the wild as possible. Mm. Um, but what ZSL did for this exhibit is they set up 
a exhibit that looks like a kitchen. And the turtles are swimming around, and like instead of a rock to hide under, it's like a walk. Oh. Um, no. And there's like butcher knives on the walls and things. Oh. Um, and like it's still, you know, uh, uh, I'm sure in it, like uh, in terms of the welfare of the animals in an appropriate mm. environment, they have all the things that they need in terms of you know being uh, on view versus hiding, and you know they have, they have sort of all the things that they need. Um, but to the viewer, it looks like a kitchen. Wow, that's um, cool. That's a great, and that's which I think is super clever. Yeah, because you know you go and see the like rhino exhibit, and there's like a plastic sign that most people don't read, and if you do read it, it's probably twenty years out of date because they're not spending money on new signs because no one reads signs, um, and it says you know these animals are threatened because of you know people poaching them for their horns, which are really just made out of fingernails or whatever. Mm. Um, everyone walks right by. And everyone walks right by. Um, but, uh, like that hits you in the face, mm-hmm. right? That's yeah. like, um, I think it's a That's super cool. clever, super brilliant. Yeah. There's like this whole new zoo design, like class coming up of people who are like awesome at that stuff. It's so cool. I think it's super interesting and people are starting to think more like people are starting in- to innovate in terms of enrichment. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, enrichment used to be hide some food in a ball, um, <laughs> Which, which is a, like, I don't mean to like put that down. That's a really important form of enrichment. Um, but now people are talking about auditory enrichment, um, oh. you know, and playing uh, like natural sounds or even just music um, for animals and giving them some control. Like um, I've heard, I don't know if it's actually been implemented yet, but I've heard some people sort of talking and throwing around ideas about like for a, like a chimpanzee enclosure or something for a, um, a primate enclosure. Um, Giving them like a computer screen where they can choose which kinds of sounds they want to listen to. Oh, that's interesting. Which would be super cool. Wonder what they. Would um, and you hear about you know you go to a zoo you go to like the reptile house, um, and most of the snakes are just kind of chilling there under mm-hmm. their heat lamps. You don't see a ton of movement, but in the wild, a lot of these animals can move fast when they're you know hunting or whatever. Um, and so the same way that in some places you can go and watch like a cheetah run. You know, where they'll attach a hunk of meat to a, mm-hmm. a pulley and have the cheetah chase after the um, meat at 60 miles per hour um, as a way to exercise the animals and to show visitors a little bit of natural behavior. Um, like, you, you should be able to do the same thing with an anaconda. Oh, yeah. I mean, the reptile houses are at, at least most zoos that I've been to have seemed like the least exciting yeah. they tend least to be a little dynamic. older and, and not then, redone yeah and then like why do you think people don't care about the reptiles as much yeah. it's like they're just sitting there like little rocks at a museum or something yeah well some of it I think some of it again is the charismatic issue and the mm-hmm. fact that people tend to be creeped out by herpetology <laughs> I never understood that um, like I still like I I don't have a thing for touching animals but I have no desire to handle snake um I and i i, I think agree. it comes I, I don't i mean i'm sure it just comes from being a kid and you know whatever um like i think they're cool and i will look at them mm. and i will write about them um like i'm not afraid of seeing them uh but i have no desire to hold one <laughs> um my, my friend uh greg who is the herpetology curator at the naturalist museum who i had on the podcast um billion episodes ago um said to me something like um you know people are afraid of snakes and they think that like frogs are gross 
and like warty and stuff and <laughs> slimy. Uh, but everybody likes turtles. Yeah, that's like yeah, the that's one true. exception. Mm-hmm. Um, that like everyone, everyone just likes turtles. Yeah, people do like love sea turtles. Yeah, and turtles, yeah. other turtles. Yeah, and now I, <laughs> did you see in the news a couple weeks ago? People. Again, well-meaning people who perhaps don't know the first thing about animal behavior, finding tortoises and like near streams and rivers and thinking that they like have are lost and throwing them back in the water. Oh, oh no, oh my god. And, and you're like, um go for tortoises oh. or whatever they are. Like they don't they're not aquatic animals. They're like, be free. Yeah, so so you spent a lot of time on the internet mm-hmm. dealing with people who I, I don't know if this is unique to the animal world the wildlife world but it might be where there are people who are really invested and really care and really mean well um but at the end of the day don't have the background mm-hmm. to really know like to to really make good arguments and yeah. to interact with animals in an appropriate way mm-hmm. um I don't know if that's unique to this subfield of science or if, like, the physics writers have their version of this, too. Um, but how how did did you find a way to, like, deal with that? Uh, sort of. I think there's two prongs, two, two decisions or two courses of action. Um, so, like, if it's... You know, like there'll be like a BuzzFeed animals. No, no disrespect to BuzzFeed animals. They're doing their thing. But like there's so many times that they've been like, look at these cute monkeys. And like it's just a, tweeting a photo of an orangutan. And you're just like, yeah. okay, like you could Google that. Like that's so easy. And it's just like it just makes me sad for like why can't you do that? So in that case, you know, I think that myself, other science writers should – be tweeting and saying, what? "Stop! Stop right. doing this!" At least actually, issue a that's correction. A, actually that's an orangutan or whatever. Yeah, yeah, and that happened, and they fixed it. And I think, I mean, it's just like you don't want to see misinformation over yeah. and over. Yeah, I mean, that's basic. That's... Yeah, and then you know other things like, for instance, we had a group of like teenage boys in Florida who caught an endangered sawfish and. A bunch of marine biologists were tweeting at them saying this is endangered. Like you, they landed it mm. and they didn't. I, I they feel threw, like I remember this. Yeah, and they threw it back, but they, these marine biologists were like, "You really shouldn't be landing this. You know, you need to recognize this fact." Really, only wanting them to acknowledge that right. that they understood the rules now and they were not going to do it again. And of course, teenage boys being yeah. teenage boys, that was not the case. <laughs> um, so I wrote a story about it and contacted the fisheries department for Florida fisheries or something. And it's always Florida. Yeah, I know. It's so <laughs> sad, even in, with animals. Um, and I don't think they were ever prosecuted or anything, but there was like this big hubbub and they obviously weren't happy with the story, even though, you know, we were careful about not showing any names or faces right. or anything. Uh, uh, but I think with that, like the only way to make some people at least accept that their behavior was wrong is to go to public shaming. Right. You know, and I think, you know, that's not the tool that we always wanted to use. 
but in that case it was effective yeah. and some people just aren't going to going to stop so you have to force them to yeah yeah my my problem there's you you see some of these stories about people mistreating wildlife um like like this sea lion i imagine that was kidnapped from the mm. beach um or there was a, there's been a story in the news about like a vet who shot a cat with an arrow mm. or something mm-hmm. um and a lot of, I mean, I see a lot of responses that are basically calling for similar violence to happen to that person. Oh, right? God, like, yeah. Ugh. That person deserves to be thrown into the trunk of a car. Yeah. It's... Or give me a bow and arrow. And, and like some of that is just people on the internet blowing off steam. And some of that is probably not quite oh, as this... harmless. Yeah. Um, but either way, it's inappropriate. Um, and I just don't get, like, I don't get it. I don't, like... Yes, be upset. Yes, these people, like, these are crimes that ought to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. Um, but the answer to violence against animals is not calling for violence against people. Yeah, I mean, that happens every time there's a trophy hunter. Oh, you, and, right, the same thing. Yeah. You and you start that. seeing these, like, photoshopped images of mm-hmm. oh. the girl next to a laughing giraffe instead of vice versa. Yeah, or whatever. awful. I, and I think that that does more damage to people who care about right, wildlife to people, yeah. than a lot of other things. You know, I mean, maybe maybe not more damage than the actual first act, but it's... Certainly in terms of, like, uh, public like, yeah, perception. Yeah, uh, horrible. I mean, then that's when anyone who cares about wildlife turns into a crazy animal activist. Right. Just because they're on the same side as people who don't like trophy hunting, and yeah. that's so unfair. And the and the crazy animal activist like is a is a is a trope. Like people, yeah. I was <laughs> I was uh, last week. I was it was my brother's bachelor party. Actually, I was up north. We were river rafting, mm-hmm. and on the um, drive home, like we were pulling out, and like there was like a little lizard that ran across the road, and I like slowed down. I didn't want to run over the lizard, and one of like the guys in the car was like, really. And I was like, oh, I was like, geez. yes, like I'm not like if I can avoid running over the lizard, I'm going to not run over the lizard. Like if I can't avoid it, like, you know, I'm not going to sacrifice the car <laughs> to save the lizard. Um, but like, like that's not crazy. No, that's just that's respectful. Normal. And that's like tapping the brake for a moment. Yeah. You know, um, but there's such a um, like, I don't know if the right word is stereotype, but there's like a. No. There's this feeling of what it means to care about animals, at least yeah. in our country, at least in the West. I don't know. Um, where it's like there's crazy and then there's everyone else. Yeah. And I think that probably comes from decades of demonstrations that weren't helpful right. Right. for the whole movement. And I mean, you know, I covered activism for a long time and it's. The first thing that a lot of critics would do is say, oh, you're an activist. But, you right. know, no, I'm, I'm just covering this right. the way a journalist covers any movement. Um, but, yeah, it's a trope. And I think it's really hurtful to the whole movement when people do crazy things like that. It's like you don't want to be labeled crazy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it doesn't help. And like, I, you know, no single person, like, can change their lives in such a way to address every problem there is. Like, mm-hmm. we can all... All we can do is like what we can do, right? Like, I started recently. I just placed a huge order for like bird friendly coffee because oh. like this is a thing that I realized I could do. It doesn't dramatically impact my lifestyle. Like, it probably means waking up five minutes earlier to make coffee. Um, 
but it's not really that much more expensive, you know? Um, and, like, thankfully, the Smithsonian Migratory... Smithsonian Migratory Bird Center, like, has established... Like, they have a list online on their website. You cool. can go. Um, and for South American coffee producers, uh, they're not... They're not um, they're not certifying African coffee producers yet, it seems. Um, but you can go, and they will give you a list of pay, like businesses that sell bird-friendly coffee. Oh, nice. Um, and that's something that I can do. Yeah. But, you know, and I can, when I go get sushi, I can try to keep in mind, like, the seafood watch list. Mm-hmm. Um, but, like, I can't, like, there are other things that, like, I wish, I wish, I just can't, I can't, you can't worry about everything, because if you're worrying about everything, you're just going to go crazy. Yeah. Oh, right? God, don't I know it. Yeah, I mean, there's, I think, certain things that people can do that will help a lot. And there's certain things that people do thinking they're helpful. Right. And they're not. I just, like, every person who comments on Facebook saying that, you know, like, on a, on one of Ricky Gervais's tweets about the trophy <laughs> hunters, like, I wish that they would, like, buy one pound of bird-friendly coffee. Mm-hmm. Just one. <laughs> just one. <laughs> We did. There was a study I read like two years ago or something, and it was uh, surveying people. What like the question was like, what is the number one thing you think that you can do to help the environment? And like this overwhelming majority said, turn off the lights. And like that was like the thing that that was a very very effective like set of PSAs, right? Oh God! And like that was at the end of Al Gore of Inconvenient Truth. Like you know, everyone said that. And then you look at the data, and it's like. Turning off your residential light for an hour or more is like pretty much nothing. Yeah, I mean, you should do that. Yeah, of course. It'll help but then, a like, bit. and then, like, if half of those people had said drive less, that's such that a, a bigger impact or, or stop flying so much or it's something. I mean, the misunderstanding is so large and I think it can be hurtful sometimes. Yeah. yeah it's interesting what people sort of latch on to. Yeah. Like um, the lights. Cause like odd. in the nineties, like when we were growing up, I assume we're around the same age cause mm-hmm. it seems like we've been doing this for the same <laughs> amount of time. Um, like save the whales was a big deal. And in some ways it's kind of worked like whales around the world. Like there's still serious whaling issues in some places. Um, but in general, like whales are like starting to recover. Like not that there aren't other problems mm. in terms of climate change and ocean, ocean <laughs> acidification and pollution. Um, and uh, anthropogenic noise, <laughs> um, but like, like Save the Whales was really successful mm-hmm. in terms of like uh, uh, conservation-related campaigns. Um, you know, what? Why isn't Save the Rhinos as successful, or or the like ninety-six elephants or whatever? Yeah. Um, I I don't know if it's because whales are more mysterious to us. I mean, I think part of it is that there's less demand. I mean. After the demand for whale oil, I think that went down. Yeah. And I think now people still don't really associate ivory products with yeah, elephants. Be. But also, I th- I don't know. I mean, I, I've always had this theory that there's something about whales being under the water yeah, and like so, being mysterious. They're and, like, so you don't different know. from us, but also yeah. so similar. Yeah. That makes that people like want to save this like otherworldly animal. I don't know though. I I wish I knew. Yeah, but it's like, um, what was I gonna say? I, I was gonna say something and I just completely <laughs> lost it. Um, no, I, it's gone. I have no idea. Um, but uh, enough of this like depressing <laughs> stuff. Really good. Um, it's a problem. Like it's a it's a it's a um, 
my friend, I have a friend who says that uh, love is an endless cycle of hope and despair, <laughs> um, which is probably true. Well, I mean, it's not probably true. It is true. Um, but I sort of say that like conservation um, oh. is kind of an endless cycle of hope and despair. Yeah. Um, but let's turn back to something helpful. Um, you are now no longer at the Dodo. Mm-hmm. Um and you're like making videos. What's that? Yeah, on? yeah. So I um, actually have paired up with another former employee of the Dodo, Candace Bryan, and we are on the first leg of our first season of a web series called Down to Earth. Um, and so basically, it's us going to different cities, finding interesting, shocking, hopeful, innovative stories uh, about pretty much any environmental topic. So that runs the gamut from energy issues, fracking, conservation, animals. Of course, I have to do animals. <laughs> um, sustainable eating, lifestyle. Have you ever eaten insects? No, we're going to in Austin. That's We've got awesome. it all set up. I did that. Um, <laughs> I did that uh, with some of my friends here a few months ago. Uh, oh, my man. friend uh, Phil Torres, who was also oh, on yeah, the podcast. Yeah. Um, we went over to his house and he, he had bought some crickets um and mealworm flour nice um I, i'm excited i really don't think it'll be that bad I yeah think. it was um so there were two sizes of the crickets i had the smaller ones um and like we made tacos so they were like sauteed in onions and like garlic and stuff and they basically tasted like onions and garlic oh okay um, so they were so like it crunchy. was a positive uh yeah i mean it's not something that i necessarily uh <laughs> at this time wish to incorporate into my regular like routine <laughs> um the the whole like you take like jar of toothpicks on the table for picking antennae out of your teeth oh my god um i mean most of them are like de-legged and de but like there's still some um so that's a little bit weird yeah yeah um, that's weird but like it like it wasn't gross i'm a pretty me. i'm a pretty comfortable eater in all senses so i think I think I'll be okay with it. Yeah, like um, I mean, I'll like I'm. I'm pretty sure this is the future. Yeah, um, I think it is. Yeah, and like people, I think most people probably will ultimately be more comfortable with like flowers. Yeah, that are made would, of crushed up insects. Yeah, there's a lot of they have a cricket granola or yeah. something, and I was like, okay, whatever. <laughs> yeah, um, rather than like you know sautéed like. Mm-hmm. If you, if it looks like a cricket, cricket, most people are probably going to be less likely to. Uh, I know, but I think like that's even more appealing to me. It's like, interesting. It's crazy. I mean, I think people should know what they're eating. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. Like, like maybe so, that's part of it. So there is that, but so anyway, I interrupted you. So yeah, making... so cricket eating in Austin. Um, yeah, so each episode will be sort of a short, less than ten minutes. Uh, pretty high quality package deal where we talk about, you know, narrate the issue at hand, but also have some sort of interactive component. So in uh, San Francisco, we went and saw these biotech companies that were working on different wildlife things and uh, synthetic rhino horn, synthetic egg white to replace factory farm chickens. Um, Are you you guys like... Is it like documentary style or are you yeah. guys like hosting? Are you guys like we're on like, camera? We're hosting, we're, we're present in it, but it's not so it's not so formal as like, hey, now we're here at the startup. Okay. So you know, it's not it's, like what you see on the news. No, oh no, no, no. And the whole 
premise is for it to be light and not so like doom and gloom. We don't right. want to be nothing, nothing wrong with like a lot of the current environmental media, but we don't want to be, you know, grists like reporter in the field. Right. Um, yeah, that's people don't want to watch depressing things. Yeah. Yeah. And we want people, we want it to be appealing both to people who are super interested in these things the way we are, but also to people who don't, know as much about it and want to watch something entertaining for four minutes or want to watch girls eat bugs for four minutes <laughs> with, you know, reputable right. information. Sure, it's sure, not sure. going to be fluff right, the whole right. time, but it'd be fun. So yeah, we're, we're LA now and then, uh, San Diego, Phoenix, Grand Canyon, wow. little pollution stories. Oh, Grand Canyon is cool. I, uh, went on a helicopter ride Oh God. with, with Nat Geo wild. Um, to the Grand Canyon. Oh, cool. And I now no longer have any desire to do the Grand Canyon <laughs> any other way. Yeah. Oh, God. We're thinking of a weather balloon or an air balloon. Oh, that would be cool. Hot air balloon. I've never done a hot air balloon. I have. I, I kind know. of have a thing for airborne vehicles. Like, I kind of want to learn how to fly. Oh. So I, I really I like being in helicopters. Ooh. Helicopters are the coolest. <laughs> um. So yeah, a hot, air, a hot air balloon would be cool. Yeah, I'm a little nervous. But you should do it. You should, be ner- you should be nervous on camera. Yeah, I know. That's perfect, right? Watch this freak get sweaty palmed in a hot air balloon. <laughs> um, but yeah, it should be, it should be cool. fun. Uh, well, we are uh, basically at an hour. Uh, it always just flies right by. <laughs> yeah. Um, but to so tell all of the nice people at home where mm. they can find you on the internet. I definitely will. So my name is Melissa Cronin. My handle on Twitter is Melissa underscore Cronin. And Down to Earth series, our new web series, which will be starting in the fall. Uh, you can find it at www.downtoearthseries.com and on Twitter at down to earth seer s-e-r okay that's awesome um and uh as i remind people every week you can find me on twitter or on instagram now at jiggled85 uh on facebook at facebook.com slash jason.goldman and you can listen to all of the previous episodes of the wildlife uh, on iTunes or on Stitcher where uh, I encourage you to leave a rating or a comment um, or of course on the Earth Touch website earthtouchnews.com